Good afternoon. Coming up on the program today, we are going to talk more about the cancellation of the Keystone Pipeline. Will it be a topic of conversation on the phone call between Joe Biden and Justin Trudeau tomorrow? Very likely. We're going to talk about that a bit later on in the program. Also checking in with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Some new information out shows a number of small businesses say they are going to pull the plug as they cannot continue operating under the pandemic rules. That's coming up in the second hour of the program as well talking about vaccine tourism with Canadians looking at what it would take to go to the United States to get a COVID-19 vaccination. First though we are going to talk about a story that you likely remember from when it first broke. This had to do with a BC conservation officer dismissed from his job after choosing not to shoot two bear cubs. Well the Supreme Court of Canada has ruled it will not review a lower court ruling. That ruling was a victory for Conservation Officer Bryce Cassavant, who joins me on the line now. Thanks so much for taking some time with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, This has been a long time uh, going ups and downs, uh, I'm sure, for you. What is your response to this ruling from the Supreme Court? I really hope that the province and the DCGEU take a step back and respect the settled nature of the law in this matter and that we can all move forward. Uh, take us back for people who maybe aren't as familiar with what happened here. When was it that you made that decision and how did things unfold after you decided not to shoot those bear cubs? In July 2015, I received a kill order uh, for two bear cubs while I was working as a special provincial constable and conservation officer in Port Hardy. I declined the kill order and was subsequently dismissed as a conservation officer. That sparked um, over five years of um, direct litigation and uh, going all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada. And your decision at the time, do you still believe it was the right decision? Yeah, good question. I've always maintained that a constable, any constable working in a law enforcement capacity that is armed, has the ultimate discretion when exercising lethal force and the responsibility for exercising lethal force will always lie with the constable. So in my view, um, I was uh, correct uh, to shoot or not to shoot. That decision was mine and I maintained that uh, that was my decision to make and I chose not to kill them and that should have ended there. And in this scenario, if I'm remembering correctly as well, the mother of these cubs had been destroyed. So was the argument being they wouldn't have stood a chance had they stayed in the wild without their mother? Well, that simply uh, isn't the case here in British Columbia. We have permitted and authorized rehabilitation facilities under the Wildlife Act, and these cubs were cubs of year, and uh, meaning they were born in the spring, so they were, they were only a few months old. And in this case, my decision was to exercise my authorities as a constable and transport them to a veterinarian for a medical assessment and to the permitted rehabilitation facility, um, the North Island Wildlife Recovery Centre. And the decision I made at that time, that was the standing provincial policy and directives to officers. That's what was supposed to have happened. 
So in my in my mind, I did my job. Right, and and sorry, I didn't mean that to sound like like you didn't. Uh, just and, and you answer that question because I think one of the the questions is what is the policy and and what do conservation officers have to consider uh, when we're talking about a scenario when cubs say that the mother has been destroyed. And I think the argument was made in this case too that they'd been conditioned to human garbage. Well, the that was the position of a an individual who was never present there. I was the responding officer, um, and I was the lead investigator for that file, and I was an appointed constable. So, um, yeah, the policy that constables were supposed to follow was to uh, exercise their independent judgment and, if possible, transport the cubs of year to a veterinarian uh, and a permitted rehabilitation facility, which I did. And as far as you know, the the Cubs went to that rehab center and were successfully released. They, they did, yeah. They, so they were rehabilitated. They were released uh, the following year with radio uh, callers and tracked uh, over the fall and into their hibernation. And as far as I know, the uh, following that winter's hibernation, they grew up, their necks got big and the collars fell off and mm-hmm. As far as I know, they're running around. <laughs> as far as we know at this point. Uh, what has this done for you as far as you lost your job, you then became embroiled in this legal battle that's lasted more than five years? I went back to school. Uh, so I was dismissed as a conservation officer. I went back to school and was accepted into a doctoral program at Royal Roads University. And so I did my uh, postgraduate studies in constabulary discipline and the history of the BC Conservation Officer Service. Portions of my dissertation were put before the BC Court of Appeal, who rendered the initial decision in my favour, which has now been upheld as a result of the Supreme Court of Canada decision this morning. And I subsequently graduated with my doctorate in social sciences. So um, with all that behind me now and the legal battles behind me, I hope that the province will accept the settled nature of the law and also the settled nature of um, the research that has now gone through quite a rigorous academic process and hopefully they will respect that and we can all we can all move forward. Do you think this has led to any change or maybe it was waiting for this court decision but do you think this will lead to change in that it was the policy does this better clarify the policy for any conservation officer that might find him or herself in a scenario like this in the future I think so I think you know in my view the law has long been settled a constable uh, disciplining a constable must take place under the police act and um and that is a very uh, stringent and very regulated process. It is, it is not the place of labor arbitrators who are not experts in policing matters to interfere with constabulary discipline. And that's always been my position. So I think what this decision does is it reconfirms that principle uh, and specifically for conservation officers as, as if they were police officers. So we're treating conservation officers Um, with their appointments as provincial constables, we are treating them as police officers for the purposes of discipline, and that's very important. And I hope that the government recognizes the importance uh, of that. Do you miss your job as a conservation officer? I do, and I've been very clear with the province that my intention is is to seek reinstatement as a result of um, these two court victories uh, at our highest levels of court, both here and, and federally. So, 
we will see what takes place next, but that is that is what I'm hoping comes out in the wash here. All right. Well, Bryce, we'll leave it there, but thanks so much for joining us and walking us through this and bringing us up to date on the latest court battle and court ruling. Appreciate your time today. Thank you very much, Joan. Thanks for thanks for letting guests come on and have have a discussion on your show about a matter that's actually quite complicated. So thank you very much for taking that on. And some news to tell you. We have learned that Julie Payette is resigning. This comes on the heels of a report that was called scathing, although many of the details of that report not released. Global News earlier today reporting that the scathing details included in the report that looked at accusations of workplace bullying and inappropriate behaviors that led to a toxic work environment. So the breaking news this hour, we are told that Julie Payette is resigning. We'll have much more on this coming up at the top of the hour. Let's continue on now. Before uh, that breaking news uh, came across the desk, uh, we were talking about uh, what it looks like with the Keystone Pipeline uh, now cancelled with uh, that executive order signed by President Joe Biden. So let's bring in George Hoberg, Professor of the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs at UBC. George Hoberg, thanks so much for being with us. Good afternoon. Uh, Talk a bit, if you can, not a big surprise that President Joe Biden was going to cancel the Keystone XL project. Where does this leave the prime minister, do you think? Well, you're exactly right that it shouldn't be a surprise. I'm so, to me, it's bizarre that Jason Kenney is referring to this as a gut punch because the handwriting was on the wall for this for a very long time. Uh, People are acting as if this is something new. The Keystone XL pipeline has actually been dead for over a year uh, and has been dead a number of times before that. But the, the presidential permit itself, which Biden has just canceled, um, is only one of many different regulatory approvals that the pipeline needs. And there were a series of other permits that had been invalidated by courts because the Trump administration didn't do the proper procedures when it issued that presidential permit. So again, it was already dead. Um, But in terms of the, it it puts Trudeau in a difficult position between the Biden administration and between the uh, province of Alberta. And so that is a political challenge for him. Why do you think it's this particular pipeline, though, that has become so political when we saw so many other pipelines quietly approved, even under the Obama administration? But there seems to be so much focus on Keystone XL. Yeah, it has become a... um, it's just one of those things that happens where an issue becomes tied to a particular symbol or issue. And so the American environmental movement has tied, basically made the Keystone XL pipeline the poster child for climate action or for, for climate you know, acting against the pipeline has been climate action. Um, that's an exaggeration of the situation there. It's also an exaggeration that, that Canadians continue to consider this the single most important issue in Canadian-American relations. I find that absurd. It's an important issue for the Alberta economy. There are so many other major issues in Canadian-American relations that we should be focusing on as opposed to a doomed pipeline. But do you think that's what's going to lead to even more uh, kind of resentment or more, uh, I mean, there's going to be thousands of people, and again, shouldn't have come as a huge surprise, but there are going to be people who continue to lose their jobs over this. Is that going to make Alberta feel even more alienated by other Canadians and by the Prime Minister? I, I do think that 
uh, is the case, but I think that's based on a series of faulty impressions about what we already knew about the future of the Alberta economy. Both uh, the government of Canada and the governments of the United States now under Joe Biden have committed to getting to zero carbon by 2050. That's not very far away from now. It makes no sense from the perspective of the U.S. to approve a pipeline to enable Canada to grow its greenhouse gas emissions when both countries are jointly committed to this uh, zero carbon goal. We need to find a way to get Alberta off of the uh, carbon intense economy. That requires lots of um, consideration about how to how the rest of the Federation is going to help Alberta with that transition. But that's something that needed to happen. We should have started that 10 or 15 years ago. And we keep um, burying our heads in the sand. We need to begin to do that. Uh, and I think you kind of touched on this, but it seems like Keystone XL has become the poster pipeline when it comes to climate change. Joe Biden talked about the fact, of like what you just said, that wouldn't make sense to, to bring on this pipeline that would deliver, I think, more than 800,000 barrels a day from Alberta to Nebraska. But even with the 2015 deadline, it's not as though people in the United States are going to turn it off immediately. There is still going to be a need for oil up until and for the foreseeable future. Well, that's a very important point, although I do think that uh, American oil, you'll see that American oil consumption will begin to decline uh, relatively soon. But the challenge with Keystone XL, when it was first conceived back in in 2007 and 2008, Americans needed more Canadian oil. Since then, the revolution in hydraulic fracturing has meant that American oil supplies have um, skyrocketed and are now by far the largest oil producer in the world. They don't need Canadian oil anymore. And so the benefits to the U.S. of a new oil pipeline from Canada just aren't there. And so it just it, there's no logic domestically for the United States to continue to pursue uh, that pipeline. What about other pipelines? And is the conversation then, do you think, going to shift completely to this is part of of climate change and climate action? Or does this actually bolster the argument for the Trans Mountain Pipeline in that there is still oil in the oil sands and that's a way to continue with those jobs, at least for the near future? So I I, I do think... Yes. So both of those things will happen. We'll we'll begin to talk more seriously about climate change and more importantly about weaning the government of Alberta off carbon intensive uh, economic um, activities. Um, But also it will increase the pressure to get the Trans Mountain Expansion Project built. It's currently on hold over safety concerns. but uh, the oil sands sector is really anxious to increase their access uh, to tidewater. And now the best way to do that is through the Trans Mountain Expansion Project. That's going to provoke conflict with British Columbia and many British Columbians who remain adamantly opposed to the pipeline. So this, this, this continues to be a very difficult Canadian issue. And how much of this do you think also, uh, like you said, I think many people saw the gut punch comment from Jason Kenney and thought, what did you think was going to happen? Uh, but how much of this is also political in that Jason Kenney has to look and he has to he has to protect the industry. He has to fight for the industry. Uh, he has to call out Justin Trudeau uh, for what he calls not fighting back, even though I think most people would know it, it wouldn't get anywhere anyway. So I, I agree with you that there's a, a lot of this is, is just political posturing, but I would disagree with you about what Jason Kenney's job is. It's not to fight for the industry. It's to fight for the economy of Alberta and for the people of Alberta over the long term. 
And that requires finding a way to wean the government and the economy of Alberta off so much dependence on the oil industry. And until Jason Kenney um, you know, accepts that fact and begins helping his province uh, undertake that transition, we're going to continue to have all this you know, unhealthy and unproductive posturing. Uh, there's going to be a phone call tomorrow uh, between Joe Biden and Justin Trudeau. Uh, you touched on this as well, that this isn't the main issue. It's certainly not the number one issue between the two countries. Do you think they will talk about it or should they talk about it? Um, I, I suspect they will. I think Trudeau needs to have his say about it. And I, I know Biden will respect that. I mean, you have to remember who the people are involved here. You know, Joe Biden was vice president when Barack Obama first canceled the pipeline a long time ago. And John Kerry, Biden's climate czar, was secretary of state as well when that stuff was happening, who was in charge of authorizing the presidential permit. So, yeah, they'll have that discussion. But I bet they'll talk a lot more about trade and especially about the pandemic. Thank God the Americans finally have a president who takes seriously these issues. When you look at the Canadian-American economic relationship, so much of it is tied up with uh, the, the people moving back and forth. If we could get both countries, and especially the Americans, more healthy, uh, it would be great for the Canadian economy. And so having those sorts, let, let's pivot the conversation about Canadian-American relations to talking about trade, the pandemic, and, and cooperation on decarbonization, as opposed to being fixated, again, on this doomed oil pipeline. All right, George Hoberg, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Well, we are now being told that the briefing that was to happen later today on COVID-19 is not happening. Instead, tomorrow morning, we are going to hear from the Premier and Dr. Penny Ballum, who is in charge of vaccine rollout in this province. We'll get more details about the vaccination rollout in BC. This, as we know, there is going to be a production blip on the Pfizer vaccine. Earlier today, Janet Brown, who's a senior reporter here at Global News, sent me this email saying, hey, to illustrate how far behind BC is or Canada in terms of vaccinations. My friend and her husband who live in Washington state got their first doses yesterday. She's 55. He's 65. They will be getting their second doses three weeks from now. Uh, That got us to thinking because there are people in this province who have got their first dose who might not even know when their second dose is coming. Is that going to prompt people to at least look into perhaps going to other countries, to other states to get a vaccination, something uh, called vaccine tourism? Well, my next guest is a Harvard Law professor and medical tourism expert. Glenn Cohen joins me on the line to talk more about this. Thanks so much for making some time for us. Thank you for having me. And I'm also a Canadian citizen, a dual citizen. I grew up in Canada and I've been living in the States. So I, not only do I write about it, I live this cross-border life. <laughs> Excellent. So you know uh, exactly uh, what's happening and uh, the possibility of this. Uh, and I know we've talked a bit about uh, people from Canada who are still, say, in Florida or in some of the warmer states uh, looking at getting their vaccine there. Uh, is it an issue, do you think, people now looking at, at vaccine tourism? Yeah, it absolutely is. And I would distinguish two groups. There's people who are snowbirds. My parents for many years were snowbirds, people who live in the States for a significant period of time. Then there's a group of people who are traveling just to get the vaccine. The snowbirds are part of a community. They are people who are subject to the risk level of a place like Miami, Florida, but they're also putting people at risk. They should be treated like other members of the community. It's people who are traveling just to get the vaccine that I think is problematic. They are putting themselves at greater risk by traveling. They are putting other people at greater risk by air travel. 
And uh, they also are basically jumping a queue in Canada and taking a spot away from somebody in the United States. And as we know, Canada has a lot of vaccines coming its way. It has a distribution system that's set up. And I really don't think people should be taking the risks and trying to jump the queue uh, by traveling to the States just to get the vaccine. Uh, even not even uh, really going into details on if you were to do that, uh, yeah, you could fly to the States and do that. But technically, you would then have to quarantine still uh, when you come back to Canada. So it would be a bit of a lengthy uh, process. Uh, do you think, though, is there a move in, in the United States to actively discourage this? So I think they're actively discouraging it, but they face a challenge when it comes to the legal. And here's the challenge. You could ask people to prove their residency, but if you have that requirement, you're going to discourage a lot of undocumented people from getting vaccinated. And that would be very bad because we also know those are some of the communities that are the hardest hit by COVID. So you don't want to create a system where you're asking people for, for papers. Otherwise, those people are being discouraged. So I think what we, we're seeing is governors saying, don't do this. We're seeing candidates say, don't do this. And we're seeing attempts to use moral suasion because it's quite hard to legally enforce this without discouraging undocumented people from getting vaccinated, which we do want to happen in the States. Uh, Is it different, do you think, then, even ethically than medical tourism in that it's nothing new? I mean, more difficult now with a pandemic and border closures, but certainly for years, Canadians have been flying to parts of the U.S. They've been flying to Mexico and going to other countries for medical, uh, medical procedures. Yeah, you know, I wrote a book about this. And of course, we all know Canadians have gone across the border to Buffalo from Ontario for an MRI. I do think it's different for the following reasons. First, I think the risks we're talking about here are greater just because we know with travel, even with quarantine, there comes the risk of picking something up and infecting. But the other reasons we're talking about an ultra scarce resource, right? When you're talking about running an MRI, one more patient here, we can increase the purchase orders, we can increase the staffing. With COVID vaccines, we have a hard limit to how many we have at the present moment. And it's important, I think, that the planning that we've been doing be conducted in an appropriate way. So while I don't think it's wrong for Canadians to drive across the border and pay for an MRI out of pocket, it seems quite different for me to taking a resource away from somebody in the community who is expecting to have it as part of a management plan for that community. And it seems different depending on where you're looking at it as well, in that I mentioned that email from one of our reporters, Janet Brown, her friends in Washington State. They're in a different part of the state because then we also got an email today, a news release today from Whatcom County, which is just over the border, much closer to Greater Vancouver, saying their phone lines have been overwhelmed with people calling, trying to book appointments and just trying to get the vaccine. So it does seem like a scenario in in that that's probably where people from Canada or from this side of the border would go, uh, you're, you're entering into a system where the people that live there already are having difficulty getting the vaccine. Exactly. And this is unfortunately part of the rollout problems we've had in the United States and that the planning has not been where it is. There's a difference between the federal government and the state governments and each of the states are running it a little bit uh, differently. But I know I'm very sympathetic to people. You know, my parents are in their late 70s and their 80s. And I know that they, you know, they're the kinds of people who would like to be vaccinated. Right. And I understand lots of people would. But it really just does increase the risk to have people traveling internationally to try to jump a queue. And it's not something we should be encouraging. And a lot of it, you make a good point. A lot of it does have to do with the vaccine rollout to where you live. Uh, my dad would be in the same scenario. So he's a senior. He lives at home alone. He wants to get the vaccine. He wants to get back to some form of normalcy. And at this point, he doesn't know when he's going to get it. 
Yeah, I think another piece of the problem is just that the whole vaccine policy has been characterized as what's called vaccine nationalism, right? Every country has gone for itself. And Canada, you know, to its credit, is part of the COVAX consortium where we're sending some of the Canadian doses to other countries and making it available. But in an ideal world, which we don't live in, you would have a system that focused on getting vaccines to the places where ICU beds are the most oversubscribed, where there may not be ICU beds when we think about the developing world. But instead, every country has gone in for its own. They're competing against one another to do purchases. And the end result is that these national borders are mattering a lot for who gets access when. And what about the idea of international travel for vaccine in that we're seeing even some countries and some travel agencies agencies starting to offer up vaccine tourism packages? Yeah, and this follows the patterns we've seen in other forms of medical tourism. So there's some surgical, you know, plastic surgery, among others, and, and the like. So I'm not, unfortunately, terribly surprised that we're seeing this, but I think it's, you know, really problematic. And what it's showing you is, you know, it's one thing if you as an individual make this decision. I don't think it's a good idea, but it's something quite, quite different when you have a commercial entity seeking to make money to take advantage of people's desperation and really upset the apple cart in terms of distribution. So to the extent there are legal means of discouraging that, that would be an area where I think government should think seriously about this and going after some of the people who are promoting this. And what about the people who are buying into it? Do you think it's more the onus is more on the people promoting it or those who are happy to hop on a plane and do this? You know, my advice to everybody as an ethical matter would be don't hop on a plane. Don't, you know, you know wait and understand how difficult it is. But if you're the kind of person who can wait, uh, that's a reason not to jump ahead of someone else. Whereas with these companies, I do think the question of whether there are legal means we should use as opposed to moral suasion is more on the table because I view it, you know, to me, it is similar to people who are saying, you know, let me divert the vaccine to someone or let me give priority to someone who's willing to pay. And really, those are the kinds of things that um, undermine trust. And I will say that the timing of these stories is a little bit unfortunate in that we have a new uh, president sworn in yesterday. Lots of questions from Mr. Trudeau on the relationship between Canada and the United States. And we should be good neighbors and good neighbors respect that there are uh, distribution systems in place. And Canadians would be justifiably upset, I think, if there was a raft of Americans taking you know, important resources that were scarce from the Canadian system. So we should want some reciprocity in that. All right. Glenn Cohen, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. Ah, I love the music. Well, we always like to share some positive stories when we can. So when we saw this one, we thought, yes, let's bring this to the attention of our listeners. It has to do with a Delta police officer who is being credited with saving the life of a man. When the officer realized that he was the only one around who would be there to help. So what happened, you ask? Well, take a listen to this report from our show contributor, John Jang. Hi, good afternoon, Jill. You can call it luck, or maybe it was fate. Whatever you want to call it, here's a story where the right person was at the right place at exactly the right time. And now, one man is still alive and recovering from injuries thanks to the decisive actions taken by one Delta police officer. Now, to take us through this story, we're now joined by the acting deputy chief of the Delta police force, that is Harj Sidhu. Chief, thank you for giving us some time here today. Uh, Thank you for having me. Last weekend, on Saturday the 16th, one of your officers very well could have saved a man's life. Can you explain exactly what happened that morning on the corner of 28th Avenue and 53rd Street? 
this young officer was uh, doing his pay- paperwork in uh, in a location within Delta as a way to keep an eye on things. So he worked down in the Ladner area, and uh, he was kind of situated over uh, near uh, 28th Avenue and 53rd Street, the farming uh, kind of community of uh, Ladner and uh, South Delta. This uh, occurred around 1 o'clock in the morning on January 26th. Uh, while this young officer was in his car doing some po- paperwork, he noticed out of the corner of his eye a moving light that was coming from a blueberry field that was nearby. He th- thought it might be the flashlight of somebody maybe uh, going through the farm field there, so he decided to investigate to make sure everything was okay. As uh, the officer approached the area, he immediately recognized that there were actually lights that were coming from the ditch area. This area is farmland, so there's significant deep ditches. And obviously, with our rainy weather at this time, they did have water in them. He recognized a vehicle that was overturned in the ditch, and it was in about three or four feet of water. And as I indicated, the vehicle was upside down, so the cab was uh, submerged underwater. And immediately, the officer's concern was, could there be somebody in this vehicle? Because this vehicle was upside down and submerged, I'm led to believe that it would have been almost impossible for the driver to have been able to escape if he didn't get that help right away. I mean, Chief, if your officer wasn't there and able to respond so quickly, we could be talking about a much more tragic story today. Yes, that's so true. And and yes, again, indicating this is a very rural area. And at that time of night, there's not a lot of vehicles traveling. So if this officer wouldn't have made the initial observation of going to investigate, there's very likely that this vehicle wouldn't have been located. And again, the way the vehicle was upside down in the ditch, uh, there's no way that the individual that was later uh, located in the vehicle would have been able to get out because the vehicle was upside down. So I'm very proud of the actions that the officer took. I just want to note this officer's been on the road less than a year, so he just finished his uh, police academy training and has only been on the road about eight to to nine months. So again, very young officer. He's alone in this uh, dark rural area uh, with a vehicle upside down, and he didn't hesitate, and he jumped into the frigid water and to make sure, was there anyone in the vehicle? He could hear that there was banging coming from inside the vehicle, so there was definitely someone in there. He didn't know how many individuals. Uh, Heads up, he radioed for help right away, recognizing that he may need assistance here, and then he tried to begin to break the window of the vehicle to try to extract the occupants. As for the driver of that vehicle, were they injured from that crash? Uh, Do we have an update on how that person is doing right now? Yeah, so once the officer was able to uh, uh, break the window, he was able to partially extract the driver's upper body above the water, and and water was flooding into the vehicle once the window was uh, broken. Um, He was very fortunate. He was able to hold the the individual, just one male occupant that was in the vehicle, and he was able to hold them above the water until other uh, assistants arrived with other police officers and Delta Fire Department. So uh, fortunately, the individual wasn't significantly hurt, obviously very traumatized by the situation, and he was taken to hospital, treated, and shortly, uh, released shortly thereafter. I'm sure an investigation is taking place to find out exactly what might have occurred, but one thing Delta Police wanted to share with the public is that alcohol is not believed to have been a factor in this crash. Yes, that's correct. Still investigating, but again, indicated it is a rural area. And if you're not familiar with those roadways there, uh, that time of night, it's very easily sometimes to be uh, 
uh, disoriented and, and not realize that uh, turns coming in the road because this was a T intersection. So it's wonderful to see that when faced with a rapidly developing life or death situation, our young constable here uh, didn't uh, hesitate. He stepped up. He made quick decisions, uh, risking his own safety. I'm so proud of him. He went above and beyond and I believe likely saved the driver's life. He was definitely in the right place at the right time. And finally, before we let you go, the officer in this story, who can't be named here for several reasons, including privacy, is this officer back on duty? And I'm wondering if they sustained any injuries themselves on Saturday morning when they were responding to the situation. Uh, other than just being a bit cold from being in the water, the officer didn't sustain any injuries. And uh, again, uh, uh, true professionalism, the officer didn't even want to go home that evening. But, uh, you know, we encouraged him to go and uh, he was back uh, on post the next day uh, doing his duty and looking to protect the community of Delta that he uh, signed up for. So again, very proud of him. And this is on another note I'd like to, you know, for your mind is to say that, you know, this is what, you know, the policing profession, when people talk about getting hired, is to make a difference. And so if there are people out there that are looking to get into the policing profession, have, uh, you know, good life experiences, uh, you know, uh, provide a second language or other experiences of teamwork and working in sports, and we look for people with 30 credits, we're always looking for more officers like this to join our department and other departments to be able to make a difference. DeltaPolice.ca, where you can find more information if such a thing is interesting to you. He is the acting deputy chief for Delta Police. That is Harsh Sidhu. Really appreciate you giving us some time here today. Thank you so much.